to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Jason Snell. Hi, Stephen. How's it going? It's uh, it's going well, Jason. It's good to be be with you again. We're back here. in space. We're back in the uh, the the Skype space. <laughs> it's the most frightening space of all. Skype space. <laughs> Really is. You don't want to drop packets on Skype or on the space station. No, they float around. True. Uh, so we have some pre-flight checklist items. Oh yes. As uh, our custom has has become to to do some follow up, but not call it follow up because things must be uh, themed on this yes, podcast. Space themed. Space themed. This is all the before we lift off. We have the pre-flight checklist. Um, uh, should we should we start with the 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 theme music that we just played? I think so. Um, so we spoke about Chris Breen in the past. He's a uh, former colleague of yours, all yeah. around wonderful human being. He wrote Space Theme, the the name of the song that we played at the beginning and end of the show. And now you can play it too, if you know how to do such things. <laughs> I, I don't know how to play oh. piano. I, I, I do a little bit. And this, this is actually, uh, the Space Theme is simple enough that one could play it. Even I could play it. Honestly, um, yeah, he did the sheet music of it. He made a little uh, PDF of the sheet music, and we'll link to it in the show notes. So, if you would like to play uh, your own cover version of the space theme from Liftoff Podcast, that's love theme from the Liftoff Podcast. <laughs> you can uh, you can do that. And uh, thanks again to Chris for for doing you know so many different so many different podcast themes, in, including this one. It's uh, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, if you listen to other shows that we do, you have heard Chris's work all over the place. Which yeah, his, is pretty the, num- cool. the number of uh, uh, yeah, the number of podcast themes that he does is is totally wild. It's uh, yeah, yeah, it's almost all of them. All all, all the great intro songs. Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly all the podcasts I do, I think, are are Breen themed. So thank you to Chris. It's nice to know somebody who's an actual musician, because I'm not. No, me me neither. Uh, we spoke a couple episodes ago, I think, about High Seas, which is the um, sort of mission slash experiment going on in Hawaii to, to s- simulate uh, life on Mars. They're currently about two and a half months into a year-long mission, and uh, we, we wanted to point uh, to their blog. I think we mentioned them uh, last time, but didn't actually talk about the blog. Were there? They're updating. They're blogging about what they're doing and what life is like. Uh, I read several of these. As we record this, um, a post that's in the show notes, it's called Dreaming of Blue, Water, and Mars, uh, talking about uh, what the ramifications are of not only finding water on Mars, but you know that, that's not the way they put it. It's not bad news for manned missions, but it's not, it's not a cure-all, right? It doesn't mean that we can go and turn on a tap and have cool ice water um, on Mars that we still have to deal with either manufacturing it or collecting it or taking it with us. And this, this blog post, um, goes, uh, goes into that and, and including like the cost, like what would it cost to do this or to take water? Um, really an interesting thing. And they're dealing with this in this high seas environment where, um, you know, they, they are basically sealed in this, in this environment and they are using the techniques and the, technology that you know we we would be using on mars they don't they don't have a garden hose running over you know they've got to they've got to come up with it on their own um but really a fascinating in-depth article and uh, the whole blog is good um it's definitely worth adding to your to your rss descriptions if that's your thing um pretty interesting stuff yeah that's cool um yeah cooling cooling the water would not be a problem but having water and having it be clean i mean that's one of the reasons i think that in a lot of these missions in addition to the search for life which we're going to talk about in a little bit uh another reason that when you're looking at mars and you're wondering or even the moon and you're wondering is there water there um or or some other mechanism to generate water right chemically um is really important because yeah this is not stuff like i love i love it you can't run a garden hose to mars because we don't have uh, enough hose to reach so that's 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 cool that's right uh, so we spoke last time about <laughs> aliens. It's totally aliens, man. It's totally aliens. Uh, SETI says it's not. No. <laughs> so no. this is the 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 Kepler uh, uh, KIC eight four six two five eight two with the <laughs> catchily named uh, star with a really weird um, it, you know eclipsing behavior when looked through the the Kepler planet finding um, 
data. And there, we talked about how it could be lots of different things. It could be um, comets and weird planetary debris and an alien megastructure. It's probably not it, but it could be like a Dyson, a Dyson sphere, a Dyson swarm. Um, and uh, that was really exciting. Uh, SETI pointed there, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, it's the SETI Institute, uh, they, they pointed some of their radio telescopes there and did some, uh, did some listening and didn't find anything. So I don't know whether that means anything. I think, you know, it's hard it's hard to it's hard to prove that it's it, it it's not aliens, uh but Occam's razor says it isn't. And uh the it was worth right, it was worth a listen and they will probably continue to listen. But um but we we didn't hear anything when we listened to that star. So it's not that star. If it is if it is aliens building a Dyson sphere, they're not transmitting. We'll we'll put it that way. But it's again, I love this story not because it. I think that it actually is aliens, but because I love and I know a lot of scientists love the unexpected. And it would have been fun if they pointed uh, the radio telescopes at it and heard some things that were also unexpected, even if they weren't from aliens. Um, just because it's always fun when you find something you didn't expect, because it means you have to come up with uh, a hypothesis about why that thing is the way it is. And that's the beauty of the uh, scientific method. Exactly. But it's probably not aliens, yeah. It's pro- no. It, still, it's still, really, it's still probably not aliens. It's like even more probably not aliens than it already was. <laughs> uh, there's got a couple links uh, to that in the show notes. You can find the show notes at relay.fm slash liftoff slash seven this week. Number seven. Lucky. The subject of last episode was the sun. We talked about... Uh, what the sun is made up of, how its energy is created, how the energy gets to us, and then sort of the ramifications of that on our planet. Really fun episode that you should check out if you haven't uh, yet. But um, about a couple days later, a couple days after publishing that episode, uh, NASA released uh, 4K footage from the Solar Dynamics Observatory. Uh, they put it up over on uh, YouTube in various places. And it is basically half an hour of imagery uh, from this uh, spacecraft of the sun and uh, using a couple different filters. So as you, as you sort of scrub through it, um, the way the sun appears uh, changes, but you can see all of the stuff that, that we spoke about. You can see things like uh, solar flares. You can see things like prominences, these, these big arcs of plasma shooting out into space and then falling back. Um, it's really just really beautiful and really a fun way to like visualize what we were discussing. Yeah. And it's just, again, the scale is just mind boggling and it's a, such a complex thing that, um, yeah, just looking at it, you, you, you immediately think to yourself, um, I, I don't even know what I'm seeing here. I mean, it, it is just so dramatic and so, um, so hard to even comprehend. That's the sun in a nutshell it is really complicated. And, uh, dramatic and interesting it is uh i like that adjective dramatic i think that's good yeah there's um, lots of stuff going on in the sun i'm not quite sure what all of it is but there whatever it is there's a lot of it <laughs> um so uh so jason you wrote uh this week are we uh, ready for liftoff are we going into topics yes, now is that what's yes. happening all right do we need some sort of sound effect no. going from no I three don't two one liftoff no we're not going to do that i just did it but it's not a sound effect when I do. So you are writing uh, some space stuff for Yahoo Tech now. I am. Well, I've written two things for, for Yahoo Tech about space, and uh, they have in, they've suggested that I might uh, be writing more stuff for them. We'll see. Um, I need to pitch them on stuff as space news happens, but I think they decided that um, their audience was interested in space stuff, and uh, one of the editors there is my old executive editor from my Macworld days. So uh, he thought of me, and he knows that we do this podcast, and that I'm interested in space stuff. So yeah, uh, my first piece for them was about water in the outer solar system, which was a lot of fun. That was uh, he basically said, "Pitch me on something," and I, I I realized that in the last couple of weeks, since we did our last episode, in fact, that that's been one of the themes. So that seemed like a good time to do a to do a story pitch, which is in addition to like the search for water on Mars, which we've talked about, and in addition to things like uh, the crazy Pluto geography, which we've also talked about, with things like mountains made of water ice. Uh, there ha- there were two stories in the last week involving 
moons in the outer solar system that have water oceans that are probably pretty good candidates uh, for uh, possible uh, life. That these are these are two of the places where it's most likely in the solar system that we might find actual life. It doesn't mean there's life there. We don't really know whether life is common when the conditions are right or whether it's uncommon because we've only ever found it on Earth. That's one of the things that motivates us in looking at Mars to see if there was life there when it was when it had the conditions for life, when it was warmer and there was liquid water on the surface. Um, and uh, the more Historically, that we look in the in uh, the, the the record, there was actually a story. This is a tangent, but there was a story about uh, looking in the. Um, oh, I'm not going to be able to remember the name. There's crystals in rocks uh, from Australia, which is the oldest terrain on the Earth, and they can, uh, based on elements, uh, based on analysis of isotopes in these zircons. That's what they are. They're zircons. I got it. Um, they can make some guesses about when life first evolved on the Earth because it's very old stuff and it's these crystals with with contents that have basically been locked in a time capsule for a long, long time. And and the latest research there suggests that life started on Earth very early after it became capable of, of supporting life. So there's this feeling like maybe if you can support life, life will emerge. Maybe it's actually common in the universe, but we don't know. We don't fundamentally know whether life on Earth is a like so extreme that it's one in the entire universe or one in the galaxy, or whether it's incredibly common and we're not even remotely special because we haven't found it anywhere else. So these two outer solar system moons might have all those pieces. Um, and the, the moons are Enceladus, which is a, a small moon of Saturn, um, and Europa, which is a, uh, a, a large-ish moon of Jupiter. And the, and we got news about uh, about both of them this week, uh, or last week. Um, Enceladus is famous because when Cassini, the Cassini probe, went into orbit around Saturn, one of the things it found, and you know, it's taking pictures of Saturn, it's taking pictures of all the moons, it's taking pictures of the rings, um, spectacular stuff. My desktop pictures on my iMac are largely fueled by Cassini at this point, um, although I got New Horizons Pluto up right now, and. Um, and what, one of the things that Cassini found was like a plume of water mm-hmm. coming off of off of Enceladus. It's like a geyser. Basically, Enceladus has a has a uh, liquid water ocean underneath its thick ice surface, and it occasionally just shoots it into space, like a volcano or a geyser, which is pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. And it's mostly around the uh, the southern pole, correct? It's not all around the the moon. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I, it's not it's not everywhere. There's a very specific place where there's this big plume that's going out into space. And um, so Cassini discovered this. Cassini's instruments aren't built to actually like. It, it's not purpose built to sample a, a, a water plume, because they didn't know it was there. But right. they do. But they do have some instruments. They don't have the um, mass the gas chromatograph, mass spectrometer kind of stuff. Um, I had a really good conversation uh, with Emily from the Planetary Society about this for this article. Uh, it was really cool. I hope we'll have her on as a guest, as a guest on Liftoff at some point to talk about this stuff a little bit more. Um, but uh, you know, she she pointed out that if you have a mass spectrometer, um, you could do really you, and you fly through it with a space probe, you could do really interesting things in terms of guessing, uh, seeing what's in there. Mm-hmm. Um, they did fly through it. It was like the closest. Uh, Cassini will ever get to Enceladus. They, they they flew like thirty miles from its surface through the plume, and you know things are so tenuous in space that there was very little uh, risk of harming the, the the craft in any way. But it does mean that some of their um, sensors were able to sample the stuff, and at that low altitude, what it means is um, the heavier stuff that fall would fall potentially back to Enceladus, fall out of the plume, is still in the plume at that point because it, it goes up it goes up less far. So they were able to take some samples and they'll and they'll see what's in there. What's exciting is if you had a more advanced craft uh, there, you would you would be able to do even more work because um, Enceladus is doing us the very kind favor of sending its water ocean out into space where we can actually touch it. Um, because it's under all of this ice, 
And otherwise, we would have no access to it, not for probably like a century, certainly for a very long time before we would be able to have a probe that would not just land on one of these moons, but be able to get down into the ocean because it's it's miles and miles and miles of ice before you get to the ocean. So that's cool. Um, and then and then Europa has a similar configuration. Uh, Europa is the one that's like more famous for being a potential source of life. Um, and it has a similar configuration. We've seen plumes on Europa um, before, but we don't have a, a probe that's actively uh, going around in Jupiter uh, looking at Europa. Uh, so what happened in the news about Europa last week was more at a distance uh, where some uh, people at uh, Caltech and JPL uh, did a paper where they essentially analyze telescope data of the surface of Europa and um, and wrote some very clever sort of uh, scripts on uh, processing the data and, and said, can you show me parts of this moon where the spectrum is different than other parts? It was basically like, can you find regions where essentially, the, the looking at the spectrum, essentially the composition of what's on the surface is a little bit different. And what they found is around the what they call the chaos terrain, which is this, which is where they think there are uh, geysers and plumes coming out from Europa's water ocean. Uh, that's where there's stuff, and they think it's salt. So they basically think that what happens is the the uh, the salty ocean of Europa erupts to the surface, and then most of it boils away into space, or you know, sublimates away. And uh, but what what boils out is the the minerals and stuff. Or as um as Mike Brown, who's the famous for the as the Pluto killer, the guy who uh, found large solar system ob- uh, outer solar system objects that are were bigger than Pluto and or as big as Pluto and led to the demotion of Pluto from being a full on planet. But it, it was one of his students who wrote this paper, um, and he said, you know, it's like how would we find whale bones on Europa, right? We're not going to go down into the ocean, so how would we find true any evidence of life on Europa? And the answer is again, the geology of the moon is such that it does us a favor by shooting at stuff. Uh, out of the ocean into space or onto its surface. And so um, there may or may not be whales living in Europa, some strange life form that we can't aware of, but can't be aware of, but we could get evidence of it by looking at the surface and the stuff that's, uh, that's uh, uh, left when the water goes away and boils into space, uh, which is the salty residue, which Mike Brown called Margaritaville. Um, <laughs> I like that. Which is pretty, which is pretty fun. Because the idea here is that to have life, you have to have not just water. Because like Ganymede, uh, the the uh, larger than Mercury, <laughs> actually sized moon around uh, Jupiter, Ganymede has a water ocean, but they think it's completely locked between layers of ice, and that's pretty. Uh, that's probably a completely sterile environment because it's just kind of water touching water, water touching ice. What what you really want is water, maybe other liquids, but the chemistry works best if it's water because we understand that and we really don't understand the process of like, what would life be like with liquid uh, nitrogen or something like, or mm-hmm. methane or something like a methane lake on Titan. We don't really understand that, but water we get. So there's water and then there's a uh, rocky surface at the, at the, uh, at the bottom of the ocean, which means that there's access to minerals and things like that. And there's access to heat because there'd be like thermal vents and things like that. And if you had energy and, and material, you know, minerals, things that aren't just ice and liquid water, Water, which we think you have on Europa and uh, Enceladus, then, you know, that's not that different from places where life exists here on Earth. So that's the story here, basically, is like there are big oceans under ice because otherwise they wouldn't be there. Big oceans in outer space and they're do- and they might have life and they're doing us the favor of sending samples to us <laughs> where we can get at them, which I think is really cool. So. Um, the the sad thing is that it seems unlikely that we will know more about any of these things through new probes for a while yet. The t- the next two probes that might sample uh, either of these objects will probably not be out there until the mid 2020s. Um, we're in this lull where there are not a lot of new missions going into the outer solar system. There's one that's on its way to Jupiter right now, but I think it's uh, it's it's focused on Jupiter itself and not on the moons. It's going to go in a polar orbit around Jupiter. But uh, there are a couple on the drawing board, and there is apparently an influential congressman who really loves Europa. I think he like 
he probably read 2010 by Arthur C. Clarke like I did when he was in high school. And so he's really excited about Europa. So there's a chance because what, what Emily told me is that, um, is that we could totally go to Europa right now. Um, the problem is that you'd have to, you, you just have to get the money for it. Like the, 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 the mission could be done very easily. It's stuff that we know how to do, but you have to get the funding. And NASA's, one of NASA's big programs, it, you might remember it as the Faster, Better, Cheaper back in the day. It's this uh, Explorer, I think it's called. It's, it's, these, it's these very specific um, uh, program for cheaper missions. Uh, and the problem is going to the outer solar system is just a little too expensive. It's like it, 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 you can't fit it in the budget. For those missions a uh, discovery program is the name of it so um so we'll see uh we'll see what happens there but it, i would say this is i think this is the most exciting thing going on in solar system exploration right now um is these icy moons around uh, jupiter and saturn because they're they're um understandable in a way that you know gas giants are not <laughs> and that they're not that interesting in terms of supporting life they're interesting in other ways but these are oceans like life started on earth in an ocean uh with liquid water um floating around against rock and some and heat and and even though it's way out there in the cold outer solar system the fact is it's liquid oceans potentially with thermal vents and rocks at the bottom and that's pretty exciting so that's 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 my story yeah, the uh that mission uh slated for 2022 currently is the Jupiter Icy Moon Explorer and the yeah. shorthand being Juice yeah. which is uh pretty uh pretty uh funny to me. Yeah, so 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 uh Emily uh Lactawalla from the Planetary Society who I've been talking about uh, wanted to get her name right because it's Lactawalla. It's not an easy name, but I got it. Um she said <laughs> she basically said, "Yeah, they're calling it Juice." And she basically said, "European Space Agency. Hopefully, they will um, think better of that." <laughs> basically, she was like, "Don't call it juice. Do not send juice to the outer solar system." But yeah, it's it's uh, planned to launch in 2022, and there's this um, Europa Europa multiple flyby mission, which used to be called the Europa Clipper. Again, not a good name, but it's uh, that one. It's like we're not even calling it something. It's just like, this is what it does. We'll give it a name later. And that's also <laughs> set to launch in the 2020. So it's going to be a while before we have these new missions, but there are two missions on the books to go, uh, go to Jupiter and look at the icy moons there. Right. I mean, we're talking for juice, you know, talking about if it launches in 2022, not being, uh, inserted into orbit until 2030 at the earliest. Right. So I mean, and, this this is long term stuff. It's not going to be in follow up next week. Yeah, exactly right. And the U Europa multiple flyby mission, they've got two different trajectories that can get there, and it depends on how much money they want to spend because they can get there faster, um, or they can get there slower depending on 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 uh, how they do it. So that's why it's sort of hazy because they haven't really said. But that that one's been funded, which is great. Um. It, it, it sounds like these these missions are starting to crank back up again. I you get the feeling I mean, it shouldn't work like this, but it seems to work like this, where these go in cycles, where there is a flurry of like really interesting activity that makes people say, "Oh, I'm excited about going to the icy moons of the outer solar system," and then you get some you get some missions, but then they don't happen. <laughs> for 20 years or 15 years and so so you're waiting and you hope that something else is is in a different cycle so like the the those initial mars you know is there life on mars kind of discoveries in the 90s are the real reason why we have so many probes around mars now because that was an impetus to fund mars missions uh which is great uh but the outer solar system has kind of kind of lagged and like cassini is what we've has done a fantastic job around Saturn, and uh, there is that probe that's going to to Jupiter. But um, you know, and hopefully, New Horizons and everything that it's been learning will lead to some uh, some challenges of uh, uh, to to get funding for uh, more outer solar system, like deep outer solar system missions going forward. But um, yeah, I would really love to see more about what's going on under the surface of Europa. And I I, I came while I was researching the story, I came to the realization that. Um, you know, I was a I was a wide eyed, fresh faced uh, teenager when I read Arthur C. Clarke's novel 2010, which has a whole bunch of stuff in it about Europa. And uh, before we learn a whole lot more about it, I'm going to be an old, old man. It's <laughs> kind of sad, but there, that's how it is. We uh, we're behind Arthur C. Clarke's timeline by 
Just a bit. I think it's time for our uh, our first break, Jason. Ting is a mobile phone service. It sounds kind of like Ring. Maybe that's where it comes from. Uh, that is here to save you money. It's true. Ting is a carrier. Its primary goal, help you save on what you pay for cell service. Ting believes you should be paying a fair price for the service you actually use, which is why with Ting, you only pay for exactly that. You can go to liftoff.ting.com, T-I-N-G.com, and see how much you could be saving with Ting. You'll also get $25 off your first device or credit for Ting service. Ting is a United States mobile service. It's on two nationwide networks. They're both CDMA and GSM. There are no contracts. No overage fees, no need for those not really limited, unlimited plans. And Ting is the first provider to allow you to have multiple devices on different network types under the same account. 80% of the phones made in the last two years can be brought over to Ting. So there's a strong chance that if you're listening to this show, you're going to have a phone that will work without a problem. And Ting has a tool on their site to let you check to make sure. Ting is helping people actually save money on their phone contracts. The average monthly bill on Ting is $23. All you do is pay for what you use. If you use less, you pay less, and you can keep track of what you're using with Ting's online account control panel. If you're stuck in a contract, Ting will offer to give you up to 25% of your termination fee and credit. If you switch, up to $75 per per device. With Ting, it is all about simplicity. You pay $6 per device per month for access to the network, and then pay for what you use. It's great for families. You can pool all your usage into one account for multiple devices. And if you don't believe you'll really be saving money, go to Ting's website. You will find a calculator. It will show you how much money you're currently spending shouldn't be. So get started by going to liftoff.ting.com. Double check you're able to switch your device. Take a look at the phones Ting offers in their store if you're looking to upgrade. And once you've decided, Ting will walk you through getting set up, switching you over to your existing number, and then you just start using your device. It'll break down your monthly usage by minutes and messages and megabytes, keep you updated through their easy-to-use dashboard. At the end of the month, you get a bill that's clear and shows you what your usage is. It's that easy. So as a special offer for listeners of Liftoff, you can get $25 off select devices or $25 of Ting credit by signing up at liftoff.ting.com. So go today and see how much money you'll be saving with Ting. Thank you so much to Ting for supporting Liftoff and all of Relay FM. So big news in the the world of uh, Orion, which is a as a little bit of a recap, a U.S. built um, craft. To, this is to the put... this is the crude craft that is that is being built by a contractor for NASA, as opposed right. to the crude crafts that are part of the com- the commercial crew program, which is a separate thing. This is like the next generation of what we would think of as the traditional kind of NASA-owned, NASA-operated spacecraft for crews. Right. This is what will take us beyond low Earth, low Earth orbit. Right, right. The commercial crew stuff is going to be great for for getting us to at least the, I mean, SpaceX wants to go further, but at least the International Space Station. This is NASA's, this is not that. This is NASA's long-range, outside-of-low-Earth orbit spacecraft. Exactly. Uh, So at the end of October, uh, it passed its critical design review, called a CDR, which basically means that the, all of the subsystems, all of the design is is ready to move to full-scale testing. And there's been some testing uh, already. The The motors that were actually on the shuttle itself, the RS-25 motors, are being uh, sort of upgraded and reused uh, in the Orion and SLS program. So some of that stuff has been ongoing because those parts obviously already exist. But it's a it's a big step forward towards getting this thing uh, built and getting it uh, um, sort of into these next stages of a, a crew-rated spacecraft, which they're saying should be ready for a late 2018 launch, um, which is, you know, really just three years away or so. <clears throat> what's what's interesting about it, and there's a bunch of links in the show notes uh, kind of talking about uh, what this means, um, but I wanted to talk kind of more about the way that this thing is is designed. So the the first this first step is what's called uh, block one. So there's a uh, there's a link in the show notes to actually uh, an image. The the SLS the is being built in a way that is flexible, right? So so block one has the Orion spacecraft on top, and it has uh, the of course the the vehicle below it. But then you move up to block one B. 
crew, block 1B cargo, and then block 2 cargo. And every time you step up, the thing gets bigger, more powerful, uh, with better capacity, not only for lift, but also uh, also for range, which is going to be important uh, as well. So it's, it's, it's an interesting system. They're designing it in a way that is going to be flexible, that, you know, we can launch this block 1 for testing, and then when it's time to you know, say we need to fire this thing and just take large amounts of cargo, they have options uh, for that as well. Yeah, it's uh, it, this is exciting because what we've got here is, so 2011, right, was the last space shuttle mission. I was, I was there, woo, I'm going to just continue to say that because that was one of the very special things in my life that I got to see this, the, the Atlantis launch for STS-135. Um, but that was four years ago now, right? And when, when, that, when that ended, uh, there, was all, there were all the think pieces about this, the end of the United States space capabilities, and we'll be you know, renting rides on, uh, on Russian capsules in the meantime, which is all true. But we are, it feels like we are getting very close now you know we're we're at the i think we're at least halfway there and maybe even closer to having um space capabilities th- both through NASA and through the commercial crew stuff that's going on with uh with SpaceX SpaceX and Boeing right mm-hmm. SpaceX and Boeing um and SpaceX had that had that launch accident but they uh they seem to be back on track now yeah and- their return to flight is i don't know the date but it's it's pretty soon and that's the social event i was at so i uh, yeah. i was actually Sorry. on the ground for that which is very exciting way to bring that pain back up that's right <laughs> that's right well you know it was uh we both had different experiences in florida is what i'm saying here uh but but uh this is exciting because because uh we are you can see the end of this process where the us space launches will be uh for crewed missions will will be back in uh, capability and it won't there won't just be one way uh, for people to go into space uh, to the international space station being the the soyuz and then the exciting thing about this orion conversation is that they start talking about uh all the different places they can go not just ultimately to mars but you know they could go to the moon and they could go to uh they they talk they're talking a lot about um like go to an asteroid uh a lot a lot of different parts of space that we haven't been able to go to since apollo because uh we've been you know space shuttle and and low earth orbit are have been what our our uh, crewed capability has been mm-hmm. so you know they they're talking a lot about cislunar space which is basically uh outside of low earth orbit but still sort of like a, between here and the moon um and uh, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff to be done. So that's that's exciting because it, it is NASA going outward again for the first time since the Apollo missions. It's been a long time that that people in general have been further up than low Earth orbit. So that's uh, that's exciting, and it's coming. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a real thing. And to to put it into perspective, I mean this uh, the big block two version of this thing is is kind of similar in. It's lift capacity to the Saturn V, which is what took us uh, took us to the moon. Really, a uh, a pretty flexible system. Like from block one to block two, the the metric tonnage, just stuff it can carry doubles. I mean, it really uh, is built for all those different different purposes that you just ran through. And I think that it it will hopefully put us in a position where we can be flexible again for the first time in decades. Where you know, or, or really ever. I mean, the you know they did some stuff with Apollo after they went to the moon. They hooked it up to a um, to a Russian spacecraft, and and then there was talk about using some some Apollo parts for um, various uh, you know space station endeavors. And but this is really the first truly flexible launch vehicle that america will have access to um you know as good as as the russians are at getting us into space and that's really the only way right now um this provides a a more advanced tool a more flexible tool to to do these different types of missions and and i like you i'm excited about it um and uh so it's it's just on its way working its way through its schedule so yeah, in cool. uh, in three years we'll we'll be talking about hopefully about its uh about its first uh, 
crude test. So. Yeah, yeah, it will be it will be very exciting to get to the point where NASA is sending uh, sending people into space using Orion, and then they're also astronauts taking you know SpaceX or Boeing or both to the International Space Station. And uh, we've got a we've got a story coming up later about uh, what this means in terms of. Uh, how you might need more astronauts for that <laughs> because there will be more people in space and more people at the International Space Station than there are currently. But we'll get to that later. But it's a, yeah, it's an exciting time. Hey, speaking of, uh, of explosions that, uh, <laughs> that uh, some of which you've seen and some of which you didn't see, we had some news about, uh, about, that, uh, about that big explosion from uh, last year, right? Yeah, so uh, Orbital ATK had... Uh, just about a, a little over a year ago, I think, had a uh, a failure. Um, catastrophic really... anomaly. Catastrophic anomaly. <laughs> That's they a, said. Sorry. Yes. Catastrophic. <laughs> Looking at these images, like so, we have a link. Uh, I put a link to Gizmodo in the uh, show notes. This first image, of this explosion, is like what I imagined the end of the world to be like. <laughs> Very frightening. So, so they had a, a a launch failure where you can watch. There's videos. If we have a bunch of links in the show notes. Uh, where it basically cleared the tower and then and then failed. And the reason this is in the news is that NASA um, has released their findings of what um, of what went wrong. And it seems like there was an issue with the pump. There was some disagreement of whether there was uh, foreign object debris involved or not. Uh, but either way, this thing uh, was pretty catastrophically destroyed. Yeah, it's uh the 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 images are are spectacular, and uh they're on Flickr and the NASA the NASA Flickr account, and they are yeah it's it's that that one image is like out of a movie of about the end of the world. That's, yeah, I expect Nicolas Cage to be running away from it in the foreground. That's what it looks <laughs> like. Yeah, you know this is part of of um of spaceflight, right? Yeah. It's part of of putting things in space. I mean, thank thank goodness this was uh. Uh, this was unmanned, um, but it is uh, something that you got to think about as we're gearing up to do more of this stuff. You know, this this is part of what can happen. Yeah, it happens. It happens. It happens. It's fine. Watch, watch the pictures. Yeah. So, uh, so we got some links to that in the uh, in the show notes. Uh, so we got we got three more stories, Jason. Mm-hmm. But I think we're gonna take another break. I and... think that's a good idea. And tell uh, the lovely listeners of Liftoff about uh, Andrew Carroll and NCH. It's really a simple ad about a difficult thing. Uh, if you work for yourself, paying taxes can be a nightmare. You have to understand all the paperwork and all the regulations, what you have to get in place. And the last thing you want to have to do is to deal uh, to deal with this when, when you're just really trying to make the thing you want to make, right? If you just want to write or just want to make podcasts or just want to uh, do freelance stuff, uh, this is kind of a barrier to that. And uh, if you are a freelancer or an independent uh, content creator type, um, you, you know what I'm talking about. You know that can just be really tiring. Um, but Andrew Carroll, uh, who is a CPA at NCH Tax and Wealth, um, is actually Relay's accountant, um, has written a new ebook called The Freelancer's Guide to Escaping Taxes. And it's really all about trying to understand what you need to do to make sure you're being efficient and effective with your money. That's what this is all about, of, of taking advantage of what's there. Be right back, uh, buying his book now. Thanks. It's a free ebook. <laughs> it's free. It's efficient. I'm downloading it right now. And getting things in place properly to avoid issues down the line. So you're not making a mistake today that could catch up with you tomorrow. Uh, and it, it's it's really to make sure you pay the tax that is required and not a cent more. Andrew believes that business should be simple. So this free guide that Jason is downloading is for people who want to learn how to make their freelance tax life easier. Then not simply and legally reduce your taxes with step-by-step instructions anyone can follow. But Andrew can help with almost anything related to business, taxes, or investments. So go check him out at cpaandrew.com slash relay or cpaandrew on Twitter. Tell him you came from us. Check out the, the guide. Uh, if you're doing anything uh, for yourself, it's definitely, you need to know about this stuff because it can be really complicated and cause issues. And uh, Andrew is here to help with his uh, free guide. So thank you to NCH for supporting Liftoff and all of Relay FM. Downloaded. Hey, Mars needs uh, Mars needs your air. In addition to your garden hose, can you send an air conditioner tube to Mars? Yeah, so, so this, is, this is an interesting story. So 
Uh, we have known uh, for uh, a long time that the atmosphere of Mars is very thin. It is very, uh, very unlike what we have here. And yes. uh, that has made the news this week because now there are some uh, some reasons why that may be. So, um, Jason, walk us through this very exciting yeah. uh this this NASA.gov page has the mo- one of the most exciting uh, you know artist renderings I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, it's like a shockwave from the sun has smashed into Mars, blowing huge streams of stuff off of it. And the funny thing is that is pretty accurate, although not as dramatic. Again, we're talking about the sun, so dramatic is the word I'm going to use. This is actually a lot like uh, our sun episode, what we talked about the solar wind and the idea that in addition to the heat and light of the sun, that that it is sending out. Uh, particles, charged particles. It's, it's it's lots and lots of particles in the solar wind, and um, we talked about how that affects the Earth. That we have our magnetic field, and the magnetic field protects us from a lot of stuff, uh, including the solar wind. But when there's a solar storm, we get the those pretty aurorae at the at the poles, and you see the northern lights, and isn't that beautiful? Okay, that's great. Um, so Mars. Here's the thing: Mars does not have a magnetic field to speak of. It doesn't have a spinning uh, metal core at its center generating a, ma- a magnetic field like the Earth does. Um, and this is bad <laughs> because because the solar wind just keeps hitting the Martian atmosphere. And so, although Mars's atmosphere was thick billions of years ago, the um, the solar wind. Uh, and this is measured by Maven, which is the one of the team of uh, robotic uh, probes at, that we have on and orbiting Mars. It's this I love that the collection of various Mars satellites we've got. We've got lots of them now. Uh, Maven is about looking at the atmosphere, the whole idea Mars atmosphere and volatile evolution. And um, so Mars used to have a thick, warm atmosphere. You could support liquid water. They've looked for it. They've found evidence of it on the surface. Why doesn't it anymore? The solar wind strips away the Mars atmosphere at a quarter of a pound, 100 grams, every second. And that doesn't seem like a lot, but the as the principal investigator um, of the MAVEN mission said, that's like stealing a few coins from a cash register every day. I was thinking it's a little bit like taking a dollar bill and, you know, and doubling a dollar every, every day. Uh, little things will add up eventually. Um, and in this case, it's just this incremental loss. It is, you know, it is losing 70 cents from a cash register every day. Over, but over the course of a billion years, that's a lot of change, right? <laughs> and that's what's, that's what's happened because it can't protect itself. And then when there's a solar storm, which MAVEN actually got to witness, um, the rate increases even more and 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 particles basically there's a there's like a a shock wave um where the solar wind smashes into the face of mars that is facing um that's facing the sun and then it pushes um pushes atmosphere off the the particles hit the particles in the atmosphere and it all just kind of erodes off into space and that is the answer here is that we we like we talked i think maybe even on our first episode about the idea that we like to think of the solar system as always being the way it is now, that it is this permanent thing, because on human timescales, it's not going to change very much. Right. But the reality is that the solar system is an incredibly dynamic place, and nothing stays the same for too long. Um, and this is an example of that, where uh, you get you get Mars... It it it's uh it becomes a planet. It's got a thick atmosphere and it's got water. And you're thinking, oh, this place is going to be good, and it is good for a billion years or something like that. But over time, it's not good because it's it doesn't have that uh, spinning metallic core. It doesn't have the so it doesn't have that magnetic field. Can't protect itself, and ultimately, it's going to lose its atmosphere to space because the solar wind will blow it away. And that's what happens. So Maven Maven has given us confirmation of that. And this is fun because we know with the missions on the ground and the missions in orbit, um, we are learning more and more about about Mars, which teaches us a lot of things about the Earth too, because it explains things about why these planets are so different and why we're here and not on Mars. So um it, it's it's really interesting stuff and yes there is an exciting uh video showing mars getting pummeled by the solar <laughs> wind and turning from a nice blue planet with clouds and oceans into a bone dry desert world which is what it is now it's uh it, they had fun yeah and it's you know whatever really like uh there's an interview in the new york times about it and uh i'm gonna find this exact quote um we sort of did this dope slap saying well of course what's going to prevent those particles from the sun slamming into the atmosphere um, uh, it's 
I just that just really kind of cracked me up of like, oh, of course it acts this way, right? But Duh, th- they needed yeah. to see it to to understand it. And it's um again like way to go earth in this in this just the right conditions for us to to be here and not, you know, not being blasted away. Um and I, I thought it was neat too that tied into to last last time's episode, but uh yeah, Mars once again, uh harsh harsh place. It's yeah, it's got a lot of problems. It's a recurring theme when we talk about Mars. Yeah, well, this is I mean, you could you could look at our understanding of the Earth is really um impacted by our understanding of Mars and Venus, right? These are two examples where um you're getting an idea of like what does it take for a planet a planet to have life on it, like like the Earth. And you can look at Venus and go, "Okay, well, runaway greenhouse effect, uh d- not good." <laughs> and then you look at Mars and you're like, "Also, you you really need to have a magnetic field because if uh otherwise you're going to lose your atmosphere and it's not like when we talked about enceladus and europa they're protected by um at least there may be other issues but they're protected by a shell of ice instead of an atmosphere but if you want to have an atmosphere um you it, it looks like you really do need a magnetic field to protect you from the solar wind or it'll just get stripped away um so it's good yeah good lessons to learn about uh you know why earth is the way it is and uh how it could have not been in other circumstances. So a big story uh, also making the rounds is 15 years of the International Space Station being crewed. So it uh-huh. was built over a couple years and grew, of course, over time. But we have had astronauts there for a decade and a half now, which is uh, pretty awesome. And it's continuous, which is unique as well, where some other uh, previous things like Skylab and everything weren't necessarily... Uh, crude end to end, where we have had human beings on the space station decade and a half. Pretty good. So it's a good run. We haven't talked a lot about the space station. We've talked about some missions and everything. I do want to do a um uh an episode uh, about it. But what's interesting now is you know 15 years into this thing, um, there's conversations happening about what to happen. When it's uh, you know, when when it has outlived its its usefulness, you know, initially the International Space Station was really only supposed to be crewed until what I think twenty sixteen. It's now been extended to twenty twenty. There's talk about going even further, but it's uh, you know, it's it's a it's a heck of an achievement. It's it's weird to think of the idea that they might actually uh shut down the international space station i mean there there are a lot so there are a lot of criticism of the international space station and i understand it that the idea that it's a little bit of a boondoggle it's really expensive it it it's we're, we're you know we're boldly going nowhere we're just floating around in space i i get that um and i might even support some of that but the also there is the idea that this is the part of our space exploration program that is about the the routines of of working in space and understanding space and that having not having to continually kind of bring your house up from the earth with you every time you want to do something in space that you've got <laughs> you've got you can understand about docking and you've got this thing that you can put up there and leave up there um is I think interesting, and there's a good argument to be made that it's an important part of what we do with crews in space. But uh, thinking about it, not I mean, it took so much time and money to get it there, and the idea that you would then like get rid of it, it just blows my mind. Um, you know, it, it, this is one of those NASA things too, where they're like, "Well, it's going to end in 2016," and then they go, "Well, we're going to extend the mission to 2020." And uh, then, you know, we'll get closer to that and people will be like, what do you mean you're going to get rid of the International Space Station? And you'll say, well, and at that point, they're either politically, they'll either say, well, yeah, but we're going to Mars in 10 years or, oh, yeah, but we we got a moon base now or whatever. Or they're going to um, say, yeah, we're going to extend it. The funny thing about it is that it's modular, right? So it's possible that what will end up happening is that they'll start doing a kind of deorbit, reorbit of parts of it. Um, the, the challenge is that my, my understanding is nobody is planning to build the new modules for it. <laughs> so, so you take the old modules out and what are you left with? So it w- it would be nice if, uh, if at some point we got some clarity. The problem is that, that, you know, the U S Russia relations are not particularly great right now, but it w- it would be nice if there was a, uh, 
uh, more clarity about like what's the future long term of this? Is it going to come down? Is it are the U.S. parts going to get removed at some point? Are we going to build new modules and keep this as you know and sort of just keep replenishing it over time? Um, there's a lot of questions there, but it it would seem a shame if in the end the International Space Station got shut down or uh, you know mo- or all the U.S. modules got removed and you know we took our ball and went home and <laughs> uh, what was left was a couple of Russian modules. That would be uh, that that would seem to be a shame too. But it's uh, it's expensive. I get it, and it's not going anywhere. It's just floating up there in low Earth orbit. But at the same time, so much effort, so many shuttle missions, so many other launches to get it to be there. It seems uh, like a mistake to not keep it going. Yeah, I, I agree. I think as long as useful science is going on and, you know, there's a, a large part of the space station's calendar is taken up not only by experiments and, and science taking place from NASA's perspective or the ESA or uh, a space agency, but also you know that you can have as a private business or as a commercial entity, you can have... Uh, stuff flown as well, and so there's there's now this sort of dual purpose where uh, industry is taking place on the uh, on the space station as well. So it's it's not like they're they're sitting up there twirling their thumbs. I mean, there is there is work to be done. And there's talk about doing other sorts of space stations that are um, that are using different technologies and techniques, but um, it sounds seems like it's mostly talk right now. It's not like Elon Musk has come out and said that he's gonna going to launch a, an inflatable space station. That's one of the things that they keep talking about is that, you know, you can make an inflatable space station. It's very small in terms of what you launch and then you blow it up into mm-hmm. full size when you get it to orbit. And it's, uh, but you know, right now this is what we got without this there, there's, you know, no people in space most of the time. And uh, yeah, I know there, there are arguments to be made on both sides. And I, I feel like what you need, if you're not going to have the International Space Station, is something else. You need something else. And politically, if not, if not for any other reason, you just just for like, what are we doing? You saw the, the hue and cry about the U.S. not being able to launch astronauts into space for a few years. Imagine um, not having a space station. I, I, I It's hard to picture that without, some, like I said, something else, whether it's uh, you know, moon landings or asteroid missions or mission to Mars that's on the near-term schedule. Um, but but yeah, it w- it feels like a step backward if we don't have a continuous uh, crewed presence in outer space for the human race. I agree, and and you know, just locking the door and leaving the key under the mat is not really an option with this with this thing. They've got to they said, got to take care of it. Right? Y- yeah, it's like okay, well, you could you could take it apart, and maybe Russia would reuse some of their parts. Um, uh, initially, when they when it was being planned and built, uh, there was a plan to use the shuttle to sort of go up there, take some parts off of it, fly the parts back to Earth. But we don't have the shuttle anymore. And in fact, NASA currently doesn't have any spacecraft that can help with either keeping it in orbit or a controlled uh, deorbit. You know, Skylab the reentry was random and it didn't kill anybody, but it landed uh, parts of it landed. Uh, in Australia, not out in the middle of the ocean, and of course, the International Space Station is much bigger. It's much more complicated to to pull it out of orbit. It's got to be very well planned, and that would have to be an international uh, event right now. Right. You would have to have Russia involved to uh, to to pull that off. And so, just saying that, hey, you know, we're going to have a crew there until 2020. Well, like, well, then what? You still have this structure the size of an American football field. Uh, in orbit. And so th- I think this is going to continue to be a topic over the next several years of um, what do you do with it? Uh, because you can't, you can't let something this big just fall. And if it's, right. if it's not usable anymore, then you, you just, you got to do something. So it's, um, and it sounds like based on my uh, really exciting research into reading a Wikipedia page that uh, the Russian space agency is they have like a, a plan to take their modules and some new modules and make a Russian space station, uh, like remove remove some of the, the modules from the ISS when it is uh, decommissioned, add a couple of new modules and create a new Russian space station. So that may be uh, something that happens as a sort of, uh, uh, you know, next generation uh, space station, but that would be operated just by the Russian space agency. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. It's going to be just as we were talking earlier about the transition to having all of this new access to orbit. Um, 
the the open question is going to be uh what what happens uh, what is the ISS a part of that story or not or or are all those commercial crew missions going to be like yay you can get to the space station we're not going there anymore and then you know <laughs> what 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 is what's next for for them so uh yeah it is a time of transition in space for for people right now it is um and there's even transition not only for the from the crew perspective but the matter of how we have uh supplies to and from uh, the space station as well. So those commercial crew uh, capsules, so like the the Dragon by SpaceX, uh, there's two versions, right? There's the version that they can use to take supplies uh, to and from, and there are uh, in the future manned crewed versions where uh, you can send astronauts. And in the in the midst of all this talk about, hey, we've been here for 15 years, uh, the the Boeing Starliner, um, the uh, the contract basically to resupply the ISS um, didn't come through. So NASA is saying, but you know, to Boeing, we're not going to use this craft. And so y- you do have again the reliance on the craft. I said craft. That was I said craft. I don't know. I just that sounded that was that made me laugh. I'm not going to use this craft. Ah, I said done. Yeah, just put it back on the shelf. Boom. So it, you know, there's um. There's even questions there of, you know, continuing dependence on the Russians, which is fine as long as that relationship is okay. Um, But it's all very complicated. I feel like there's a lot of moving parts right now uh, in dealing with uh, station stuff. Yeah. Uh, Oh, so we have uh, we have one more topic and it is related to a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, which is astronauts going here and there and uh, new missions and old missions and uh, new new spacecraft and all of that. It turns out that uh, there NASA needs to expand the astronaut corps. They're going to add a member to the International Space Station because of the um, the new technology and the new uh, the new craft. There is the Orion capsule that we talked about earlier, and there's all the commercial crew stuff that's going to be happening. So um, they're gonna they they put out a call starting in December December fourteenth. There'll be a two month period where you can apply. Uh, I have to laugh because it is a U.S. government entity. You actually go to the USA Jobs site where anybody who applies for any government job applies if you want to apply to be an astronaut still fill out the form put in your resume you know you can you can apply to be a a a park ranger or an astronaut whatever you like and uh but if you're in the military you also need to talk to your commanding officer it turns out Uh, and you also have to have a very specific set of skills you got to have a a a science or engineering degree an advanced degree is preferable Um, you need three three years of related professional experience um, however, if you don't have that, it's okay. There's another way you can qualify. You can have a thousand hours of pilot and command time in a jet. <laughs> so take your pick. I think I should apply. And then you have to pass the physical. Yeah. Which, um, <clears throat> but good news. Astronaut salaries start at about $66,000 a year. It's pretty good. So big money. No whammies. Yeah. Uh, so I, I um, this is fascinating. I am not qualified in any way for any of this, but it is a fun idea that they they need to. They got big plans, and they need more astronauts. You know, a lot of stuff going on, and I, I put that at the end on purpose. That's kind of a nice way to tie everything we've talked about today yeah. together. There's we're right again in this sort of lead up period to a lot of activity, and you know you got to start training people now if you're going to have them flying in three, five, seven, ten years. You know that's a it's a process. If you think about the arc of the shuttle program, too, you know, after uh, after Columbia, the shuttle program got slow again and the decision was made to shut it down. And um, and there were still missions to fulfill all the ISS requirements. And there was the mission to fix the Hubble Space Telescope one last time. And then it got, you know, then we shut it down. And it's clear that there was a brain drain or an astronaut drain at NASA during that period. Um, the current astronaut corps, according to this Discovery News article I'm looking at, 47 astronauts available. That's a third the size, they say, of uh, what it was in 1999. Um, you had those seven-person crews on the space shuttle, and now there are there are like a couple astronauts per mission to the ISS. So um, they haven't needed astronauts. And if you're an astronaut and you look at uh, your chances of flying in the next, I mean, granted, you're making the $66,000 a year, but your chances of flying are not very good. Um, 
you would probably want to leave and go get a nice aerospace job or science job somewhere that uh, that uh, fulfills you and probably pays you better. And um, so, so it makes sense that the astronaut corps is down, and it makes sense now, based on everything we've talked about, that they want to staff it back up. I think that's uh, I think it's a good place to uh, wrap it up. I think so. I think so. We have we have covered everything that we uh, could think of uh, in space. Uh, this time now next time we're hoping to get uh have another guest on yeah that'd be awesome uh, well we're we're still scheduling that but uh, but hoping to do that and uh you know we'll also be working on some uh, primers for other uh, other space topics as well because i i feel like so far seven episodes in we've kind of got three different episode types we've got our guest episodes we got our primer episodes and we got our grab bag news episodes like this one and uh that's not bad although if you've got other thoughts about things you'd like to hear on liftoff you should let us know at uh liftoff podcast on twitter that's a good place to go or you can go to relay.fm slash liftoff and there's a there's a contact link there and you can email us too you can find uh the show notes uh today with all the links we've been talking about at relay.fm slash liftoff slash seven or in your podcast app of choice. Mm-hmm. You can follow Jason on Twitter at jsnell. Uh you read his writing at sixcolors.com. You find me on Twitter at ISMH. And again, like Jason said, you can find the show at Liftoff Podcast. I think that'll do it uh for this fortnight. Uh so yes. until the next one, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye everybody. Adios.